everyone. I'm Ian Nicholas, joined by my co-host Dylan Pescator for episode 18 of the Beyond the Whistle podcast, where it's definitely one of our biggest yet. We are joined by an awesome guest, well-known in Connecticut as one of its greatest sports personalities and athletes, really, of all time. It's Bobby Valentine, former MLB manager, and so much more. Bobby, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, guys. My pleasure being with you. Indeed. Yes, all-time. That means I've been around a long time. (laughs) I get the all-time thing, but it's cool to be with you guys. I hope we, um, we make a hit of this, too. Let's do it. Let's do it, definitely. So first, just to start us off, how are you doing in quarantine? Obviously, you're now the athletic director at, at Sacred Heart University. So have you been able to maintain your role there and maintain just staying sane during these crazy times at home? Yeah, well, you know, I think you're responsible for your own saneness. So I'm insane, you know, and I don't worry about uh, being sane. Uh, but, you know, we have Zoom. We have uh, web conferences. Uh, that, you know, we have over 900 athletes, uh, 28 Division One coaches, mm. uh, 90 coaches and staff in total. Um, there's a lot going on every day. And as this information is filtering down from the uh, NC2A through our conference, which is the NEC, the Northeast Conference, through our president and, and HR office, to our compliance office, to me, to the coaches, to the players. I mean, there's information that has to get out there. So I've been pretty busy. Great. So you started off at Ripperbaum High School, and I'm going to keep the topic of athletics. So you're a three-sport athlete, all state in football. Just a handful of players did that for three years of your four years at high school. And we, we see all these records of you playing football, but you choose to play baseball. Why is that? Well, I'm not a real big guy, and baseball is offering me a lot of money, and uh, football is offering me a scholarship to go to college. Uh, it, it was a tough decision, actually. It was the number one draft choice in 1968 of the L.A. Dodgers. Yes, mm-hmm. I played three years for uh, Rip Wom High School and was lucky enough. Here, here's the, here's the uh, little little turn on the story, just so you don't think it just came out of the uh, nowhere. You know. Uh, when I was a kid, junior high school was three years, seventh, eighth, and ninth. High school mm-hmm. was three years, sophomore, junior, and senior. Well, when I was going into my ninth grade year in junior high, they closed the junior high school, included oh. junior high school in Stanford, Connecticut. So now they have all these kids that got to do something with them. So they took the seventh and eighth graders and they dispersed them around the city in the other junior high schools. And they sent the ninth graders to high school. So I got to learn all the football plays when I was a freshman. I got to run with the varsity and got the coach to know me. So I got to start the first game of my sophomore year, which is very hard to do because you guys know you just get to school as a sophomore and the season's ready to start. Mm-hmm. How the heck do you know the plays? You know what I mean? But I was a lucky one. I got the plays down. I had a big line out in front of me. I scored four or five touchdowns my first game and um, it was scholarship city after that and then I signed a letter of intent to go to the University of Southern California at the end of my high school uh, career and two weeks later I was drafted in the major league draft by the LA Dodgers as their number one draft choice and I chose to play professional 
Um, and, you know, there's all those phrases that sell, you know. You guys probably hear of them. Well, the vice president of the Dodgers came into my house. He said, here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. We're going to offer you $65,000, which you get to take over two years, and a million dollars worth of great advice. Wow. And, <laughs> and you can go out and play against the best players in the world. Sounds like a win. Or you could take a scholarship, go to college, and play against the best players out in the pack eight. And I said, I wanted to play against the best players in the world. He knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to prove I was the best. And he went right for my juggler vein. (laughs) Well, you've always wanted to prove you could get it done on the biggest stage. And that's what you have done. You had a very successful MLB career, a decade long. You played for the Dodgers, Angels, Mets, and Mariners. And what was that transition like from from Stamford High in in a small town? Well, it's not, not a small town, but a city in Connecticut. And now you're going all the way to California, and your life just takes a complete 180. I mean, I know you were an awesome high school athlete. You were also part of a student government at your high school, and you're an accomplished ballroom dancer. So you can really do it all. But what was that transition like to just the major leagues just that fast? Yeah, it is kind of crazy. I I remember almost remember being your age. And when I was going into my senior year of high school, I was traveling around during the summer to look at universities where people are trying to offer me scholarships. And then when the school year began, I continued to go. So I like went to about 32 different universities from coast to coast and uh, it was whirlwind you know it was crazy I didn't know what to expect at Notre Dame University you know there was no internet for me to look it up I remember going through the Encyclopedia Britannica if you guys don't know what that is it's okay but it was the it was the info source before the internet Before you could look things up online, you had these volumes of books that had all the information in it. And you got your uh, A through B book and you'd look up Arizona and then there you'd find Arizona State. And there'd be a little photograph, and they'd say they play baseball. I go, oh, that's pretty cool. Now let me see where Arizona State is. And you'd look at the back of the encyclopedia and get the map of the United States, and you go, oh, yeah, it's in Tempe, Arizona, right there on the map. So it was crazy times. And when you said I went right from high school to L.A., actually I had two stops along the way. The first place I played was Ogden, Utah. I played for a guy named Tommy Lasorda. He was a rookie league manager with the Los Angeles Dodgers organization in 1968. And I got to play for him, be roommates with a guy named Bill Buckner, who's famous for other than being one of the best players I ever played with, uh, Steve Garvey, uh, Tom Petrucci. We had some minor league players at that time that were were, were great. They all played yeah. great, uh, had great major league careers. I, I got to the major leagues as a 19-year-old. Actually, my freshman year of college, that's wrong, my sophomore year of college, after 
my minor league season playing in Spokane, Washington. I checked in in USC to be a fresh uh, sophomore uh, in school, and the Dodgers expanded their roster in September. I got a call up, and during the daytime for nine days of September, I was a student, and at night I was in uniform dressing up and practicing, not playing much with the Los Angeles Dodgers. I think I got into three games or so. Yeah. That's and amazing to hear because we don't hear many of the young players coming up these days. They're about 24, 25 after they go through the rigors of the minor leagues. So you going into the major leagues at 19 is unheard of. I wanted to go back to that Utah days playing under Tommy Lasorda. You know, his big moment is playing Kirk Gibson in the, 19, in the ninth inning of the 1988 World Series, putting in him after not playing the entire game and him hitting that uh, walk-off home run off Oral Hirsch, Dennis Eckersley, actually. So what was it like yeah. playing under such a legendary manager? Oh, he's a legendary manager. You know, he's in the Hall of Fame. He uh, is the only guy to ever win a gold medal in the Olympics, a minor league championship se season, and a world championship at the major leagues. And this is – I don't know if you get that photo, but this is the guy in the middle, Tommy, and me at the end in 1968. I think uh, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Awesome. And then this yeah. is years later oh. with my roommate in college yeah. and one of my best friends in life, uh, Billy Buckner. Yeah. So you guys got a couple of those things awesome. to go along with the podcast. What else you got going, guys? Well, you mentioned, uh, Dylan mentioned the legendary managers, and that you were. You managed, obviously, for the Mets. You brought them, and you're wearing all the gear right now. You brought them in a World Series. But you started with the Texas Rangers. You, actually, you started with the Mets, and then you got tabbed for the Rangers job. You spent seven seasons there. So I know you obviously had more success down the line managing and even overseas, but tell us about that early year as, uh, as a manager, and you grew and developed as, I guess, a leader of men in the MLB. So what was that like, transitioning from a player to a manager with the Rangers? Yeah, I had some cool photos around here. Um, uh, you know, it was a crazy – it actually wasn't player to manager. What I did is um, – I retired when I was 30 years old. Actually, I was, re I was retired. I was a free agent. And no one wanted to sign me. So uh, after breaking my leg when I was 23 and holding on for another seven years, kind of playing all different positions, but not playing them up to the – the level that I should have been able to mm -hmm. play them had I not broken my leg and come back with it crooked. I then became a bench sitter. I learned many positions. And after being released at 30, I became a minor league manager with the San Diego Padres, then a minor, I mean minor league coach, then a minor league coach with the Mets, and then I became a major league coach. So when I was 32 years old, I was the third base coach for the New York Mets, giving the signs down at third and waving Mookie Wilson and Dave Kingman and George Foster home wow. to score runs on the pivotal days. But then I got a call from my roommate, uh, with the Mets when I played with the Mets in 1977, who now in 1985 was the general manager to Texas Rangers. And he mm. said, hey, why don't you leave the Mets and come and manage the Texas Rangers? And I became the youngest uh, manager at the time in the big leagues wow. and uh, took over the reins of, uh, of the Rangers. And then these are some letters and some notes mm. From the guy who fired me as the Texas Ranger manager, and his name is George W. Bush. Bush. 
and he was the managing general partner yeah. of the Rangers before he became um, the governor and then the president. Yeah. Wow. That's what we're starting to see. I mean, the Rangers started your career with those seven years, and you had to fight through a few tough years, and then you get hired as the Mets job going back to the uh, New York Metropolitan where you started off before the Rangers. And between 96 and 2000, we all talk, always talk about the Subway Series and how there's a huge rivalry. And you did make the World Series in 2000. You made the NLCS in the 19, 1999. Did you feel any pressure while the Yankees – were starting to win between the 96 they win and 98 they win. Did you feel any pressure as a Mets manager to do better? <laughs> of course. You know, when I took over the team, the problem was uh, not winning, but winning the back page of the New York News and the New York Post. Mm -hmm. Those two publications, again, uh, this is before the real uh, – full use of the internet where you had to get your news at six o'clock on one of the local stations or at 10 or you got your news in a newspaper and what was uh, lacking was the Mets wasn't necessarily the wins it was the fact that they were kind of out of touch with the sports community and the Yankees with Derek Jeter soon to appear became the darlings of the town and uh, which they kind of always were even though it is I think there is a great Met following but they became the darlings because they started winning and um, winning was uh, then the next priority after the back page captures and uh, we built pretty good teams you know that uh, actually um, played with the big boys when you look at the number of Hall of Famers that went through the Yankees from the time that I started play, managing um, the Mets in 96 until the time I left in 2002. Uh, you know, we had Ricky Henderson for a little while, and, uh, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. And, uh, yeah, we had Mike Piazza, and um, there was no one else from the Cooperstown reign that was on that team. We were playing against teams with multiple Hall of Famers and multiple stars every year. It, it, it was fun. It was fun, exciting. Uh, I, and uh, we just came up a little short back in 2019-99. Well, obviously – 98, too. We came up one game yeah. short in 98 from making the playoffs. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, that was definitely a great run in the late 90s and early 2000s that you had. And – Definitely a great time to be a New York baseball fan with all that competition. But something that Dylan and I are very interested in, since we want to go into sports broadcasting as careers, is your time as an on-air analyst. Uh, you started in 1989 when you were still with the Rangers as non-field analyst. You worked with Bob Costas then, one of the legends in the business. And then over the years, you've also done work for ESPN. And you've done some of the biggest games over the past 5, 10, 15 years as an analyst there. So what drew you to the, the coverage standpoint of things as, I mean, obviously you have a great knowledge of the game, but what drew you to TV and how did you get better there? Well, you know, like I said, I was lucky with my junior high school closing and I happened to be in high school and lucky to go out to Ogden, Utah, far, far away and have a guy like Tommy Lasorda take me as, as his son and player. Uh, mm -hmm. I was lucky when I got out of baseball. They were starting this thing um, 
it was kind of a new idea. It was called ESPN. <laughs> you know, they had this flatbed truck and they had this big satellite dish on the back. And they were renting time in different satellites that were ro roving around the, the world that no one even knew were out there. <laughs> and they would rent a little space and they'd take a clip of a game or they'd take a game and they'd try to bounce it off that satellite down the satellites in people's backyards onto their television to create a network. And uh, I got to do one of the first baseball games that ESPN ever did. We did a double header of the main black, of the main Huskies, no, the main black bears against the Yukon Huskies back in like 19, maybe 80. Wow. And then, and maybe 79, uh, it might've been the fall of 79. And mm -hmm. then a couple of years later, I was lucky enough to get, the call to uh, kind of do a trial uh, pilot idea where Major League Baseball, which had a thing called the Game of the Week, which was the only nationally, nationally televised game. It happened yep. once a week. It happened on Saturday. Okay. And the broadcasters of that were Joe Graziola and Tony Kubak. And they ruled the baseball world at the time. Well, NBC decided at the end of the season, they were going to have three daily telecasts. And instead of having a national game, they were going to have regional games. So they took a guy who was doing hockey uh, in St. Louis and doing some college basketball games and took a big mouth ex-player who could actually put a sentence together and put us together in the booth. And Bob Costas, who came from St. Louis, and Bobby Valentine, who came from Connecticut, actually did the national game of the week because the other two games got rained out. Oh, that? that sounds awesome. <laughs> so it's kind of all lucky stuff, you know, that yeah. happens. And that's how I got into it. And then, you know, over the years when I was free, if I was fired and in between jobs, they say, hey, let's get Bobby to do some sideline work. And then ESPN really did me right and let me do baseball tonight uh, uh, at their nighttime show. They let me do the Sunday night game of the week, um, which was spectacular. And, um, yeah, I was just lucky to get to, to be in the right place at the right time. Definitely. I mean, we always think about these former players who are going on television now. Um, from My Michael Strahan, you see on Fox Football, uh, Terry Bradshaw, all these guys just filled up with ex-players. And now you're coming in, and no one really knows your name. People know you from a managing standpoint from Texas, but on a national <laughs> scale, no one really knows you that much. How did you, like, uh, hone your craft at TV when you're coming in from a managing baseball background? Did they tell you that they wanted you more of an in-game guy, dissecting managing movements and strategy? What did they tell you? No, there's a, there wasn't much room in the, in the booth to be a specialist at the time we had three in the booth and you had to be there doing the game and if there was part of your specialty that could come out So be it, but the great pop artist that just came out. So they were looking for someone who could just fill the airways. And as you guys are kind of 
figuring out with this podcast, I'm not bad at filling the airways. It's all BS, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's not stuff that you're going to take to the bank and turn it into any bitcoins or anything. But it's it's not bad stuff, you know. It fills it fills the time. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to be able to fill time on air, and you know, you have such yes. an awesome personality. It's like you were almost made, you know, not only to be a vocal leader mm-hmm. when you're a manager, but to fill air time on TV. So obviously, you manage for three different teams in the MLB, but Tell us about your time overseas in Japan. I mean, this is something in well, not only you did it once, but twice, and you were able to bring some success to these teams that had never really been seen before for this organization. So what was that time like in a completely different place that you'd never been there before? What was the culture like, and how did they accept you uh, after you started bringing in winning results? Well, that's a lot of answer um, <laughs> and a lot of questioning. Good job. You got it all capsulized. Uh, the gig is, um, I went there to be there for two years, Mm -hmm. but after my first year, at the end of my first year, uh, I got a kind of birdie said, if I got back to the States, the Met job was going to be open Mm -hmm. and I'd be considered. And I figured that was kind of a lifetime. So I came back. Now here you talk about lucky, crazy stuff. I do become the Met manager, and after the tenure there, I get fired. And I go to lunch in New York City with a buddy of mine um, whose kids went to, uh, and nephews went to um, New Canaan High and, and, and other places. But anyway, um, we were having lunch in New York City at a high, high-priced restaurant, and after lunch, a guy came walking over to the table. I had just been fired the day before. The guy was the owner of the team in Japan that I left seven years prior. And he said, I just read the newspaper. Would you think about coming back to Japan? Crazy, huh? I don't know if he was going to call me up. I don't know if he's going to write a note. I think he had a really good lunch and maybe a cocktail or two during it, and then saw me and said, oh, what the heck, why don't I say, come on back, it'd be a novel thing. And um, I, I, I went back, we won championships, we turned a, uh, you know, a low-life, uh, non-revenue-producing team into a team that um, uh, their fans can be proud of, their owner is proud of, uh, yeah, ticker tape, tape parades, and not really ticker tape parades. Hey, you guys know, why do they call it a ticker tape parade? Not really sure, no to be honest. Next, next, we, are we both going to guess or just Ian? I got okay. nothing. Yeah. Isn't that I, funny? I, do you know what ticker tape is? Kind of, but not. not we, I think we're going to need the, the breakdown here. <laughs> Only because you're in the communication world, guys, all right? So the way they used to transmit information prior to uh, the cable being laid and having uh, images come through the cable, they had um, um, Morse code come through the cable. Mm -hmm. And that was like da 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 And it would spell out certain letters, and you would read the Morse code on a long string of paper. That was called the ticker, ticker tape, the tape for the ticker. So after 
the Morris Code came the transmission of stocks, stock quotes over the same line. So the guys at Wall Street would be up in the buildings and their, their pre-computer way of getting information was on this ticker tape and there would be this paper around the office in bundles and piles. And when they decided to come down the, the uh, Canyon of Champions, all these guys opened their windows, ripped up the ticker tape and threw it out the window. And it became a ticker tape parade. I wow. hope you like that. I loved it. That was a communication. Story. Yeah. yeah. So I want to go more into the Japan uh, situation. You know, we talk about people going United States. Now you're going to Japan. Is there any different strategy you're using? What do you talk? Are you even speaking English with these players? What was going on with that? Uh, uh, wow. So I learned Japanese after I got there. But, yeah. you know, I had kind of a, I kind of had a, a history of this Japanese situation. When I was in high school, your age exactly, uh, we put on a senior play. I happened to get the lead in the play okay so here it is the football star coming off the gridiron to go on stage to learn lines to put on makeup and to be the lead in the class play huh? well the lead of this particular play happened to be a japanese interpreter Mm. And I played the role of Sakini, who was the Japanese interpreter in the play, Broadway play, later movie, starred by Ma Marlon Brando, mm. The Tea House of the August Moon. Huh? Wow. So from high school, I had learned lines in Japanese to be this Japanese interpreter in the play. Now... I hurt my leg with the Dodgers and I'm on crutches in 1970 spring training mm -hmm. and the Yomari Giants, the Tokyo Giants, the New York Yankees of, of Japanese baseball were spring training with the Dodgers for two weeks in Vero Beach, Florida. So while I wasn't on the field, I was hanging out with the injured Japanese players learning to use chopsticks and trying to figure out who the good players were. And then at an early age, I gave clinics in Japan to all of their high school coaches and their college and professional coaches. And I was in these world baseball summits where the guy who wound up hiring me as the general manager was running these summits. And I was always one of the speakers to talk about, how about this topic in 1986? Pitch counts. Yes. In 1986, I was talking to the Japanese about limiting the workload of pitchers so that they could have their A stuff when they come out the next time and they can prevent injuries. And it never stuck really well in Japan. Even when I went there, every time I took a starting pitcher out, I was booed by someone in the stands because they believed that what you start, you're supposed to finish, which was, what, which was our mentality too until basically that 
mid-80s era. It was before them, I know, but in the mid-80s, it really caught fire to have the specialist, to have the closer, to have the left-hander to get the left-hander out, to have the long man who could come in when your starting pitcher gets knocked out early and start to designate roles for players out in the bullpen rather than all pitchers on the, te- on the team have a role, and that role is to pitch and be ready to pitch whenever I, the manager, need you to pitch. And that's the way it was run maybe through the 50s in, in all parts of baseball and evolved into the mid-80s to the specialists to evolving to today's world where the specialists became so defined and so limited in scope that the employers decided to eliminate the position. Mm. And what position am I talking about? Starting pitcher. The left-handed specialist. Oh. Now when you come into the game, you have to face three hitters. Yeah, it's a new rule. Right? The new rule for this season, which will be applied to major league level, is when you come in the pitch, unless you complete the inning, you have to face three hitters. And so that eliminated, eliminated an entire work category specialist in the bullpen. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Very. I mean, definitely. And, you know, to, I guess on a non-baseball note, now in all the adventures that you've gone on and, you know, all the investments you've made – from your restaurants to your sporting academies where some of my friends work at and, you know, you're working Stanford, you're working Stanford as a, as a, you know, in the government there and you're working Sacred Heart investing so much money and helping to bring those programs up and make them bigger and better at the university. Why is it so important to you to give back and then some to the Connecticut community, the Fairfield County community? And really, since uh, after your uh, management career, after about last year with the Red Sox, why has it been so important for you over these last seven, eight years to give back and, and do what you can? Well, I like to think it's just part of my DNA. You know, I grew up in Stanford over on the water side of town. We grew up in a five room house you know i'm not giving you the poor boy story because i never felt like i was poor but my dad mm-hmm. was a carpenter he worked 18 hours a day my mom was a secretary and she went to work five days a week in order that i could have a new glove every other christmas and be able to not have to get a job as a high schooler that my folks worked and my mm-hmm. brother worked to make sure that i didn't have to work i mean it, it's spectacular and while they were working and and, and providing for my brother, my older brother, and myself, they were always giving back. They weren't giving, giving back money. They were giving back their time, their wherewithal, their energy. My mom would make the pizza at the church carnival. My dad was the guy who made everything for anyone in the in the neighborhood or in the family who needed it made out of wood and believe me he never charged and he was usually at the place installing the cabinets or the table well after midnight and trying to keep the kids sleeping and not waking them up so yeah they they always gave and it was uh, it was just part of my upbringing and um, I believe that it's part of life so uh, I never think of the stuff that I do to be anything but ordinary some people think it to be extraordinary which it's not 
but maybe it's a little more than the average Joe. And uh, if it is, I'm glad, I'm glad I do what I do. Well, we're definitely glad to have you. We're definitely glad to have you on. We're actually very, very distant relatives. And you said something that sparked, you know, my grandmother also uh, at the St. Leo's Fair in Stanford used to make pizza fruit for years. So this truly is a magical place, Fairfield County, Connecticut, right? So we have one, uh, we have one of the biggest names, obviously, from Fairfield County and you. So just thanks so much for joining us today. You guys are really kind, educated, and uh, very well received at this end. Thanks, guys. Great job. I hope you get someone to watch your YouTube. Take care. <laughs> We're building it up. Thank you so much, Mr. Valentine. This has been episode 18 of Beyond the Whistle podcast with Bobby Valentine, joined by Dylan Pescator. I'm Ian Nicholas. We'll see you next time.